0: Welcome to On the Middle East, the podcast of the award-winning media service, El Monitor, where each week we talk with the decision-makers and thought leaders who are making the news and shaping the trends in the Middle East. I'm Andrew Parasoliti, president of El Monitor, and our guest today is CNBC news anchor and international correspondent, Hadley Gamble. My conversation with Hadley Gamble after this short break.
1: Prior uh, to what happened last week, this uh, horrific explosion, when I would speak to finance ministers, the leaders in these countries, they would say to me, listen, we've been pouring money down the hole uh, in Lebanon for decades and look where it's gotten us. It's gotten us nowhere. And until we see a government that's not so aligned uh, with Hezbollah, we just really don't see any reason you know, to throw good money after bad. But what's going to be really interesting in the coming days, I think, is to see what kind of real commitment you, you're going to get from these guys. Because, yes, they're sending money in the sense that they're sending humanitarian aid and food, all these things that are desperately needed in the short term. But whether or not that's going to lead to any you know, real long term funds is a bigger question.
0: Welcome back to On the Middle East. That was CNBC News anchor and international correspondent Hadley Gamble. Hadley and I will be talking about developments in Lebanon, the impact of low oil prices and COVID 19 on Saudi Arabia and the Gulf states, whether the US is losing ground to Russia and China in the Gulf, and Hadley's career covering the region. Now, Hadley is the anchor for CNBC's Capital Connection, which offers business and economic news from the Middle East and Asia. And she's also a host of Access Middle East, that's the CNBC documentary, where she interviews and profiles world leaders, international CEOs, and philanthropists about trends in the region. Prior to CNBC, Hadley worked for Fox and ABC. She's based in Abu Dhabi these days. She covers the entire region and Hadley has been a vocal advocate for empowering women. She is also a regular speaker and moderator at the World Economic Forum and other major international events on the geopolitics and economics of the Middle East. My interview with CNBC's Hadley Gamble starts now. Hadley, welcome to On the Middle East.
1: Thank you so much, Andrew. I'm thrilled to be a part of this, especially doing something like this with you since you really saw my career from the very beginning.
0: Well, it's, it's great to have you, and uh, I've been excited about this conversation as well to get your take on all the, all the things that are happening in the region. Let's get right into it. Let's start with Lebanon. Uh, the cost of the damage from the explosion last week is estimated at $15 billion. There are 300,000 people homeless French President uh, Macron has sponsored a donors conference, which has pledged 300 million, but donors are wary of aid flowing directly to the government, which has resigned. And the warning of a food shortage. The GCC states are also taking a substantial role here, including a major initiative by the UAE to assist Lebanese families who have lost their homes. How do you see the efforts of the Gulf states in particular, and others, to assist Lebanon, and what comes next, especially as the oil-producing states are dealing with lower oil prices and the impact of COVID-19 on their economies?
1: I I think, Andrew, with uh, GCC in particular, you really hit the nail on the head there, because all of this has to be viewed through the lens of the new reality for the Gulf Arab countries, their economies, all of them suffering from lower oil prices and from the projections oil prices that we're already seeing over the next couple of years, which, you know, put oil between $45 a barrel, and if they're really lucky, $60. Um, I think that this is going to be really interesting to see how it plays out, Um, particularly for Saudi Arabia, the UAE, Kuwait as well. Um, Qatar, you know, kind of, in a sense, flying high off the fact that they're much more dependent, obviously, on LNG. But I think what's going to be really interesting in the coming months is to see how they, uh, in particular, deal with the new reality of Lebanon, because prior uh, to what happened last week, this... uh, horrific explosion, when I would speak to finance ministers, the leaders in these countries, they would say to me, listen, we've been pouring money down the hole uh, in Lebanon for decades, and look where it's gotten us. It's gotten us nowhere. And until we see a government that's not so aligned uh, with Hezbollah, we just really don't see any reason you know, to throw good money after bad. But what's going to be really interesting in the coming days, I think, is to see what kind of real commit you, you're going to get from these guys, because yes, they're sending money in the sense that they're sending humanitarian aid and food, all these things that are desperately needed in the short term, but whether or not that's going to lead to any you know, real long-term funds is a bigger question. And what I've had the sense of in the last several days, speaking to members of the Lebanese diaspora, is that there's a real effort behind Mr. Macron's bid to you know, create Not a French mandate. Nobody technically believes that that's possible. Um, But really, um, the only way forward here, where you could get all parties aligned with a potential um, government that is not, you know, linked to one party's corruption, because unfortunately, you know, you just have such a huge group of bad actors uh, in Lebanon across the political spectrum, across the religious spectrum, that no one of these countries wants to put money there. And so I think this is going to be a fascinating few weeks because the conversations that I'm hearing about behind the scenes are suggesting that they're already looking for, you know, who's going to be the next prime minister. And the names touted are names like Saad Kariri, um, who nobody I've spoken to on the ground in Lebanon actually believes. Um, could get get approval, right? But the reason he's being touted is because they say, well, Hezbollah would back him. Um, But they're also now, as well, speaking of Nawaz Salam, who's someone that they're very worried might not be um, uh, really a potential candidate because Hezbollah wouldn't back him. So I think right now, all of the international players are trying to focus on getting some kind of government together for the short term that could, frankly, rebuild the economy. Because as much as the Lebanese street is very rightfully, you know, angry at their entire political class, that isn't going to recapitalize the banking sector, and that isn't going to help the currency. And I think that, you know, when you can, when you're outside of the country, you can you can really focus on the fact that a bankrupt country isn't good for anybody, particularly for the Lebanese.
0: This explosion came as Lebanon's economy was already sinking fast. 90 billion dollars in debt, 89 percent inflation, uh, third straight year of negative growth. This uh, comes as crisis upon crisis for the Lebanese people and many times the reform programs which are necessary to bring a country out of such crisis require transparency, and often austerity, which increase even, which impose even greater costs on the Lebanese people. As we're looking at the situation now, including Macron's role and the donors, how do you see that evolving? Because Lebanon has to pick up where they left off with greater urgency in terms of its negotiations with the IMF and the donor community.
1: Absolutely, you know, it was interesting. So over the last several days, um, Monday was the day of the explosion, and I was actually supposed to be there in an exclusive interview with the central bank governor, Riyad Salemi, longest-serving central bank governor in the world. Um, for years, his quote-unquote financial engineering was lauded you know, by this sort of global banking community as, as really a way to keep the lights on and to keep the, the debt of the country serviced, et cetera. Um, and then in the last couple of years, I think there's been a growing realization that actually because there's been no you know, fiscal reform on the government side and the corruption was as rife right as it was, uh, that this was actually doing a great disservice to the country and and frankly, you know, people call it very easily a Ponzi scheme because that's what it was. Um, but, but done, frankly, with the full approval, let's never forget this, of the entire, um, you know, parliament and leadership uh, of Lebanon, right? They were in, all in bed together. I think that you can spread blame across the spectrum on this one. Um, and I think that th- this is a situation now where, Um, you know, obviously, I didn't end up going to that do that interview last Monday, because they had just shut the country down for another COVID spike, right? And we decided, okay, we'll wait for two weeks, we'll come back uh, when it's when it's safe to do that. And obviously, Monday's events have changed the game completely. But as you say, they still got to deal with the fact that they've got a currency that, you know, has been completely devalued and they have, um, you know, the central bank was essentially inflating assets to the tune of as much as $6 billion, among other things. There's also, you know, so many things that have been alleged of of what's been going on there for the last several decades. And obviously all of this is highly politicized. So uh, they've got to go back to banks. And one of the things that, you know, I had heard repeatedly was, you know, essentially, Everybody had a, a finger in this pie. Everybody knew that something um, untoward was happening, but because of all of the vested interests, there was no uh, one person who would say, okay, well, it's time that Riyad Salemi is shown the door because you know they're all in bed together. Um, and so the banking sector, if you allow the entire banking se- sector to fold, there had been a suggestion that then they would recapitalize or create five new banks. Well, if the majority of the shareholders of the current banking system are all um, Christian. And that was pretty much across the board. Who would have then the money to to have new banks? That, of course, would probably be the most, uh, you know, coordinated organization within the country, political party, Hezbollah. And so that created its own sort of miasma of of concentration from particular U.S. officials and their maximum pressure campaign. So, you know, everybody's got a vested interest in seeing Lebanon not be a total disaster and hopefully be at least somewhat of a success. When you speak to the Lebanese diaspora, they would say to you, this was a country that could have been Monaco, but for the fact that they could never get, you know, the, the politicians to stop stealing from the state. And it's so, for me, when I sit back and look at this, I think that, you know, as much as the, the Lebanese street is absolutely right to be you know, livid and angry with their government and want them all out you know, with, across the spectrum, the problem is, is that the political interests and the vested interest in keeping that corrupt system alive are such that you're not going to be able to get everyone out. You're not going to be able to throw them all out of the country because they still have money in the country, right? Everybody keeps saying the money's all gone. It's not all gone all of these big families, everybody's invested in this system. So unless you create an interim government, it's very difficult to see how they can get the economy, you know, the wheels moving again. And even those IMF conversations, I have to tell you, I was speaking uh, at the Munich Security Conference with the IMF folks um, off record, and and it was was tough for them to see at that point how they could even um, have successful conversations before the conversations really even started because of the corruption because of the fact that there were no there were, no one was clean in that process. And they were actually, as much as they wanted to help Lebanon, I think, really, really worried about starting those conversations because they knew how tough it was going to be to get anybody who would tell them the truth and who would follow through on reforms.
0: Let me come back to a, a broader point you raised um, in answer to my first question, which is, the gulf states and the challenges that they're facing with low oil prices and COVID-19 and the impact that that's having on their economies. I would say that in addition to Lebanon, in addition to Iraq, the regional crises are daunting. Uh, You've got the wars in Yemen, Syria, and Libya, and of course the Israeli-Palestinian issue you're talking to leaders in the region and those involved with the region around the world. How do you see five, 10 years out when you have so many demands on these countries? And do you think that they'll end up looking more inward or or is it possible to disentangle the regional conflicts from what's happening in terms of domestic politics in the Gulf states?
1: I think prior to what we've seen with COVID, perhaps the answer was yes. I think post-COVID, that's changed things considerably Um, in terms of Aramco, for example, you know, the world's most profitable company was beaten out recently, at least briefly, um, by Apple, for example, um, something that no one would have imagined possible prior to COVID. Um, You know, and I think that the, the sort of You know, Saudi Arabia, in a way, my interest in Saudi Arabia and and the, you know, intersection between oil politics, um, national security for the United States, uh, national security for the Gulf, uh, really did sort of launch my career, I guess you could say, 10 years ago, 11 years ago when I moved out to the region. And I think that what's happened with COVID, what's happened with these lower oil prices, yes, you can say, yeah, we've had shocks in the market before et cetera, et cetera. But this came at such a pivotal time for a country, for example, like Saudi Arabia with a huge booming youth population. We all know the numbers. Um, there was a reason why you know, the, the Saudis decided you know, under Vision 2030 to really emancipate women because economically they had to have two income households. I mean, it was all very basic. Um, I think that it's deeply worrying, um, the fact that these economies are going to, to struggle over the next couple of years. Only because previously they've been such a huge influence or counter-influence to Iran in the region, um, so it's going to be really interesting to see how this all plays out because they're going to have to work together at the end of the day. And I think you saw that starting to, to become obvious last year when you had those attacks on tankers in the Gulf, um, when they when they unofficially were talking to Iran, for example, the UAE and Iran. Um, you know, I think that they they understood that the United States wasn't necessarily going to come and save the day, and they also which was a you know a, a pretty new thing. Um, and frankly, what not what, something they expected, um, given the fact that the first foreign trip by the president was to Saudi Arabia, right? But also, um, the fact that these lower oil prices has put such, such pressure on, on these economies, they, they have to concentrate at home. So while it may be worth it to them to put a lot of money elsewhere, like in Lebanon, for example, um, to, to create a better outcome, At the same time, they've got to really watch how they spend that money. Um, It's not going to be like it was previously, and I think that's going to change the regional dynamic, no doubt about it, in the decades to come.
0: You mentioned Saudi Arabia. Tell us a little more about how you see the future of Saudi Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman's Vision 2030, um, and how do you see the country evolving under his leadership? And when we're talking about the broader economic trends, do you see a trend in Saudi Arabia and elsewhere toward diversification away from oil? That was one of the foundations of Vision 2030.
1: I mean, at the end of the day, you've got to convince external investors that they're not coming there, you know, to with their hand held out to the public investment fund or other you know, or to banks there. That they're coming there, um, and if you're going to, you know, if you're if you're looking for money from Saudi Arabia, then you've got to be willing to put money to work in the country, and you just. As many people would go to the FII, for example, you just didn't see the level of investment um, that that should have, you know, to make it equitable, I guess you could say. Um, all the big boys would come, all the big private equity guys, everybody who runs a bank, everybody sort of wanted to be involved, for example, in the Aramco IPO and all of these kinds of things because they wanted the fees, but at the same time, they weren't necessarily willing to put serious money to work in Saudi Arabia, and it's something that I've asked you know, people again and again, Steve Schwartzman, Larry Fink, et cetera. What I think is going to be interesting going forward is there was no doubt about it. You know, MBS absolutely right on Vision 2030. And as I mentioned with the women um, emancipation, frankly, women, um, that was, you know, one of these things that it was going to be it was a win win. It was a social win, obviously, and something that they needed um, to do, given you know the 21st century and all of this, but also because it made economic sense. Um, at this point, obviously, the road to diversification was always going to be slow because you had a, a huge population and as many of them has been, you know, they've been educated in the West, it just wasn't enough to keep up, but also you've got to have investment dollars um, and, and, you know, you're creating entire industries. So the saddest thing about the Saudi story, and this was a story that I, you know, have, it's it like Lebanon because it's something that I've followed for as long as I have, um, is very close to my heart. You know, the, the things that happened, Jamal Khashoggi, the Riyadh Ritz-Carlton, um, you know, the consolidation of power uh, by Mohammed bin Salman and the ruthlessness, which, which he has done that, unfortunately, also served to, to really scare away a lot of these big investors who you needed to be putting their money to work there, right? Uh, to get that kind of private sector growth that they really wanted. Um, and I think that COVID changed the game there and really set them back, unfortunately for them, um, at a time when, frankly, they, they really needed this to all start working.
0: How do you see the Russian and Chinese influence in the Gulf? Do the Gulf countries see China and Russia as alternatives to U.S. partnership, both politically and economically?
1: I think it's a fascinating, fascinating thing to watch, frankly, and, and one that I've I've enjoyed covering over the last few years. Um, I remember several years ago now, maybe five or six years ago, I, I was told the meeting between uh, Vladimir Putin and, and BZ happening in, in the Kremlin, I, I think that was correct, um, had been set up um, in sort of, had been set up privately and the conversations were starting to flow about you know, how they can be how could they begin working together, economic diplomacy, right? That's what happens first. You saw the same thing happening with Saudi Arabia. Who would have ever thought at the end of of the war in Afghanistan, right? Um, The Soviets, anti-Soviet feeling, obviously, in Saudi Arabia. I mean, the Pakistanis are always the ones who said, you know, we asked Saudi Arabia to come to our aid there uh, because we were afraid of the communist threat. You know, those, those kinds of feelings amongst the older members, particularly of the royal family in Saudi Arabia, ran deep. Um, but at the end of the day, it was a situation where it worked for both of these parties, whether it be the Russians and the Saudis or the Saudis and the Chinese, um, to kind of go their own way. And I think that you, know, you and I have been, we spent a lot of time in the Gulf um, during the Obama administration in particular and that pivot to Asia speech. Um, those words, I remember that was a conversation we were having at a, a double I double S a forum in Bahrain. And I remember right. the fear in that room because they thought, what does this mean for us? Is the United States abandoning us? You know, and there was there was real fear, and it wasn't just a national security fear. It was also um, a deep worry that that sort of security for oil agreement was was going to to, to end. Um, and I think what's been really interesting to watch the, the Chinese-Saudi relationship evolve, a lot of that has come off the back of the work that the former oil minister did, Ali al naimi to develop markets in Asia um, and South Korea. He did a lot of work to, to, to solidify those relationships that I think Mohammed bin Salman's worked as well uh, to create you know, deeper bonds. Um, you know, I, I just remember sitting in the room, I would, I, would, I would hear about conversations, for example, that State Department officials were having with their counterparts, for example, in Saudi Arabia and I'd get their readout of that, of what, what they think happened in that meeting, right? And then I'd talk to the Saudis and they'd tell me a completely different answer that they got out of that meeting. And you just, you just kind of got this feeling that, that US policy and uh, the, the Gulf economy policies, right? Like whether they be in a UAE, Saudi Arabia, elsewhere, that, that they weren't speaking the same language anymore, right? After so many years um, this was not the relationship that the United States had, you know, when James Baker was in Riyadh all the time. Do you know what I mean? It was, it, you got a sense that they were out of step. And that's unfortunately continued. And now, you know, even quite openly, when I've spoken to uh, the UAE's ambassador to the United States, Yusuf Taba, we've had this conversation many times in the last couple of years, which is that, you know, the US-UAE relationship is going very solid, but at the same point, you know, there are a lot of questions about how they're developing their ties with China. Um, And and that's continued to raise eyebrows. He's told me multiple times in Washington, um, but they've had to say to their counterparts in DC, like, listen, we have to look East. We have to be, you know, we have to have multiple partners because unfortunately, you know, we're not gonna be able to sit and you've made it very clear that we're not able to sit in the pocket of the United States anymore. So we can't be surprised by that, but you know, there is also a sense that we let it go.
0: You find that the uh... Gulf countries and the UAE in particular uh, are therefore hedging a bit let's say on Iran
1: no I think absolutely um, they've had to right and and the UAE it just by you know virtue of their geography has has always kind of had to hedge right what I think is going to be interesting and a question that I've asked multiple times um, under this president and and prior to that is you know at some point the American voter God forbid they realize that we're spending, you know, billions of dollars to put the Fifth Fleet in Bahrain so that we can place waterways um, for, frankly, Saudi and Kuwaiti and uh, UAE oil to head to Asian markets. Why are we funding that? And at some point, a taxpayer might question if that was really a good use of our money, for example, after coronavirus. So, so we'll see, but I think that they recognize that, that nothing is for certain anymore, and so they need multiple partners, um, frankly, going forward.
0: Let's talk a bit about you and your career in the region. We met, I think, about 10 years ago when you were with Fox News, where you covered uh, the 2008 presidential campaign, and before that, you were at ABC. What drew you to the Middle East?
1: Um, you know, it was, I had always wanted to do the region and when I had been hired by ABC in 2003, they had stopped hiring for the war. And um, I ended up sticking with Washington and doing about seven years in DC with ABC and with Fox covering national politics, which I found fascinating Um, and and my background. My parents were quite political. Um, My father's family very Republican. My mother family, um, Democrats in the in state legislature. And, and so the conversations around the dinner table were always surrounding what was happening in politics and the world. So I was very fortunate in that way. But the Middle East always fascinated me. And when I had an opportunity to join CNN, um, because they were opening an, an office in Abu Dhabi, I was seriously considering it. But I thought, you know, I don't want to be in Abu Dhabi necessarily. I want to be in Cairo or Beirut or, you know, kind of the traditional postings for for a foreign correspondent at that time I was a producer and I had a a very good friend, uh, Joe Robert, who who you knew very well. And that's actually how we met, um, who was a private equity guy, a real estate guy in Washington who had spent a lot of time in the region and we had a lot of long conversations. And he said, you know what, you should always look at things um, from the standpoint of, you know, whoever has the gold makes the rules. So everything that you see happening in the broader Middle East, the strings are being pulled by the countries that have the money. Who has the money at that time in the region, the big money? It was Qatar, it was Saudi Arabia, it was the UAE. And when I thought about it from that perspective, I realized that, um, you know, oftentimes in general news, you don't ever look beyond the explosion. You don't ever look beyond, you know, the immediate you know, story, Uh, because, you know, on television, you've got two minutes max, you know, to tell a story, unfortunately, and it's that time is getting shorter by the day, right? Um, Because we all have the, we all have the attention span of nets. But, but it's interesting coming uh, into eventually the financial news um, environment, I was able, I thought, to tell the story in a bit of a different way, which was, okay, yes, you see this happening in Lebanon, but why is this happening? Um, Because, for example, Saudi Arabia is not giving money to the Lebanese forces anymore. And Hezbollah, for example, is under such pressure via Iran and what's happening with the U.S. sanctions. Now, Covid as well. um, They're going to hang on for dear life. Um, So, you know, you start to see um, wherever the money is flowing, you can kind of see the broader picture. And then you can, in many ways, I've found, predict how this is all going to play out next, um, because who has a vested interest in, in X, Y and Z happening? So anyway, I ended up in the UAE, and and it's been a fascinating ride from there. Um, Just spending all of that time in the GCC countries, in particular, over the last couple of years, has been a sort of eye-opening experience. I spent so much time in Saudi Arabia before they opened up, for example. Um, And really, you didn't see that many Western journalists spending a lot of time there um, during those years. And I think for me, that was a real formative experience of sort of understanding how things, you know, how things were at that time, and then to have seen what MBS was able to achieve in those couple of years of opening up Saudi Arabia. I mean, going there five years ago and going there today is like a completely different experience. As you know, um, it's unbelievably um, changed.
0: You've had fantastic success covering the news and interviewing decision makers in the Gulf and throughout the region. What in your journalistic training prepared you for that success and what has served you well,
1: I think um, it's been interesting. Uh, it, with CNBC, we were uh, until very, very recently when we opened a bureau just two years ago. Now in, in Abu Dhabi, with a full you know, broadcast facility and all the bells and whistles. Before that, it was just me producing myself and you know using freelance cameramen and just sort of like fly by night, you know, kind of kind of thing. I think that. I was really well prepared, having worked at the network level for someone like Peter Jennings. That was my first job out of college, was to, to go as an intern to ABC in the political unit and then to, to move as a production assistant on World News Tonight. And at that time, he was still there, John Banner as executive producer. Um, TV at that time was split, you know, network news was still a, a huge thing, the 630 news. And I remember when Peter would be in Washington, especially for, for events he would red line, he would take a, you know, a, a red marker and go through everyone's scripts line by line, making sure it was all accurate, that it was all right before it went to air. And you just saw the level of, of how seriously people took things. And even then, you know, this was 2003 to, to 2005, 2006, it was even then cable was still looked at askance, right? Because it was that new thing, cable, right. which is so funny to think about now. Um, but, but I think that that helped a great deal um, in, in making sure you know you, you you get it right before you let it hit air it doesn't go to air at all. Um, and also just, being in the Middle East requires that you have, it's like putting things together with knitting needles, as we said, you know, every, everything going to fall apart, there's going to be chaos, you know, a- until the very, very last minute and probably during the show itself. So as long as you can exist in an operation that's basically chaotic at all times, <laughs> then you can find some kind of success, right. Um, but I, I think that I'm not the best, but I, I work harder or at least as hard as everyone else, and if not harder. So I think that, that that has served me well to have just an incredible work ethic. And I love it. So that, that doesn't you know, seem like hard work to me. It just seems like what you would do naturally.
0: There's lots of great great advice and experience in, in what you said. I mean, knowing the product in terms of both production uh, all the way up until performing on air as a, as a correspondent, getting the story together, the attention to detail, working on tight deadlines under demanding uh, and such highly regarded mentors like uh, uh, Peter Jennings uh, and others you've worked with. I think that is fantastic experience and being able to you know, work in an environment, as you say, that is chaotic as, as mm-hmm. often as not, maybe more often than not, uh, and, and loving it. you know, I think that,
1: I... <laughs>
0: <and> that matters <laughs> I otherwise.
1: It. It's still the best <laughs> thing. I can't imagine. I feel so bad for for people who, who don't really love what they do every day. Um, because it's chaotic and it's sometimes, you know, if you lose the big interview, which happens all the time, you know, there's a big interview, for example, I was supposed to interview the prime minister of Lebanon before he resigned. We had it, we were a go. And then they called me an hour before I was supposed to get on the plane and said, you know, the PRE agency that they'd hired in London who no one had ever heard of thought oh it might be a bad idea for him to talk to international media you know things like that happen all the time where somebody else gets the big interview and it's at the time it feels like you know your world has ended and then you know a couple of hours later you get on with it and 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 you start again you know and you start the chase again so that part of it chasing the news is 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 part of the fun but I I've actually been really blessed because with CNBC because you have this sort of Broader remit to, to sort of sit back and think about a, a situation with regards to, you know, what are the economic implications here? What are the long term issues going to be? Because we encompass everything from, you know, why would you, for example, today, I mean, I'm, I'm chasing members of the Lebanese diaspora asking them, you know, the big business guys who have their money outside of Lebanon, who only ever really sent money back, you know, would you put money in this country today? Um, you know, what are the actual conditions with, by which that, that, that you would be willing to get in bed with, with, people who frankly have questionable reputations, um, you know, all those kinds of things, but that's gonna determine the future of nations, right? And I think that that within that sort of umbrella of economics and finance, you're able to look at those things in a different way, maybe than in general news.
0: Has being a woman working in the region helped, hindered or been a non-issue in your career in the Middle East?
1: It's fascinating in a way because I have this conversation with colleagues of mine, um, girlfriends who've, who were in the U.S. for this whole sort of last 10 to 15 years um, and sort of lived the Me Too movement in, in the United States versus in the region. I think that, you know, early on when I would go to Saudi Arabia um, at that time, obviously, you know, everything, women and family section versus the male section things like that, that was all very real. And I remember, you know, I'd leave our little office there and walk down the street to the Starbucks very early in the morning, because our shows obviously are, are market shows, so they're quite early on. And I remember, you know, the men would would walk beside you and sort of throw paper at you, trying to give you their number or get you to respond to them. Um, because, you know, and they're all like 18, which I guess is slightly flattering when you're definitely over 30. Um, but, but, you know, it's a weird situation to be in, because if you had, at that time, a, acknowledge them and the religious police were to see you, you would be the one in trouble, not them, right? So, in that sense, those kinds of things were very, very strange. Um, while at the sort of government and uh, royal family kind of level, um, I couldn't have been treated better you know what I mean, with more deference and, and you know, kindness than, than, than by those folks. So, so you know, you definitely have both sides of the equation. And then, you know, going to Cairo was, you'd get mobbed. <laughs> if you're walking downtown and you've got a camera, you know, you needed people around you to make sure that that you weren't hassled um, by men. But at the same point, you know, when I worked in the United States and I've had this conversation I mean, again and again with, with girlfriends who were working with me at the time at various organizations, they're... The Me Too movement sort of just exposed what, what we all used to just laugh about, which is, you know, in media, you're kind of, you're kind of at our target no matter what, um, as a woman, you know, whether it be from people you work with, your superiors, um, or, or what you do, you know, and, and certainly now with social media as well, the attention that you get. And I think, you know, it's all very person specific and personal to the person, obviously. Um, depending on, you know, what you're willing to, to put up with or what you should put up with. But I think I would say post-Me Too, there's just so much more awareness um, and and sort of the men are so much more aware within the companies of what's what's right and what's wrong and, and what's uncomfortable um, at the very least. And then even more broadly in the region, this sort of renaissance for, for women, especially in the Gulf Arab countries, for example, um, has actually been really, at least uh, on the surface of it and, and what I've been told, supported by men. So you see a, a shift for the younger generation and how they're treated and, and the esteem with which they're viewed. Um, particularly in places like UAE, frankly, and and Saudi because, um, you know, in Saudi Arabia, they have, you know, a growing number of women in government positions, but also You know, there, there's a recognition that they have to be a part of the workforce in order for this country uh, to succeed at all. So um, it's one of those instances where it just makes economic sense.
0: Emily, in the interest of uh, full disclosure, I have to say, you know, we're, we're good friends. I always enjoy spending time with you. Me too, um,
1: <laughs> I miss seeing you very much, uh, <laughs> uh, it's terrible.
0: Uh, I know, I miss you too. And I always learn a lot from you, both about journalism oh. and about the region. Uh, nice. And it's just been fantastic having you as a guest today on, on our program, so thank you very much.
1: You're a doll. Thank you so much, Andrew. I've loved being
0: on. We'll be right back after this short break.
2: I'm Ben Kaspit, Al-Monitor veteran columnist reporting from Israel, one of the world's major news and action suppliers of all times, comparing to its tiny size. I've been covering and analyzing the political, diplomatic, and military arenas in Israel for over 34 years. My best-selling biography, The Netanyahu Years, was out two years ago. I covered seven prime ministers, one major war, two intifadas, one prime minister's assassination, two and a half peace treaties, four military operations in Gaza, and it's not letting up anytime soon. I'm glad to invite you to Own Israel, our brand new podcast, where we will discuss major events in Israel and its surroundings, talk to decision-makers, leaders, and analysts, and try to understand the chaos that comes with the territory of Israel and the Middle East. You will never have a dull moment with us. See you soon here on Israel, Al-Monitor.
0: Welcome back to On the Middle East. I'd like to draw your attention to one of the many takeaways from our conversation just now with Hadley Gamble. Hadley said that while we can expect international donors to likely assist with food aid and humanitarian relief for Lebanon, that's all urgently needed, the larger challenges of economic assistance and reform to the country is an open question. She said her soundings with finance ministers and investors is that Lebanon has been a case over the years from the perspective of many of throwing good money after bad. And while the anger on Lebanon's streets is justifiable, the country needs a government to manage an economy, make the bank solvent and liquid, bring jobs to the country, bring down inflation, and restore transparency and credibility with international creditors. There will be the short-term challenge of an interim government to be set up to begin these negotiations to address the urgent, immediate problems in the wake of the explosion last week, and the broader challenge to elect and form a new government that can begin the process of stabilizing and then reversing Lebanon's political and economic dissent. My final word today is about the Lebanese people. Whose rich and diverse culture and resilience are an inspiration to so many in the region and around the world following this recent disaster and their experiences with governments which have failed them until now. They deserve so much better. Thank you all for listening to On the Middle East. I'm Andrew Parasoliti, and we'll be back next week. And in the meantime, please sign up for this and our other El Monitor podcast On Israel with Ben Kaspett at your favorite podcast platform.